Welcome to the 15th episode of the Middle East Institute, National University of Singapore podcast, Boots of the Ground, Security in Transition in the Middle East and Beyond. In this series, we look at the future of warfare. We will see uniformed soldier or boots on the ground being replaced by private military companies, autonomous weapon system, and cyber weapon. My name is Alessandro Arduino, and I will be the co-host for this series along with my colleague, Amin Lutfi. Thank you everyone for joining us today. We're very glad to have with us today, Dr. Andreas Krieg from the King's College London's UK Defense Academy and the Royal College of Defense Studies. At the King's College, Craig has been involved in designing and providing professional education for senior strategic uh, members of both from the British government and beyond. Dr. Craig is also the co-author of a much acclaimed recent text that will be at the center of our discussion today called Surrogate Warfare, the Transformation, Transformation of War in the 21st Century. Prior to joining King's College, Dr. Craig worked at Serco Middle East as a contractor of the Qatari Armed Forces, assigned, amongst other things, to set up a joint command and staff college. Drawing on his rich experiences and first-hand knowledge, Dr. Craig also frequently provides his critical insight on geopolitical changes in both global print and television media. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for, for having me. Andreas, thank you very much for, for joining us today. And uh, let's say just to kickstart our discussion, I'm wondering if you could give a, to our listener a very quick introduction to the central idea within your recent book, namely the idea of surrogate warfare. You suggest that it is not simply reckoning of proxy war, but it encapsulates a broader phenomenon. Uh, can you please elaborate a little more on that? Uh, and uh, there are any kind of key theories that have helped you through this idea, like Sunz, Machiavelli, Clausewitz, or even Volmolke? Right, thank you very much. I mean, this is a very broad question to, to begin with. Um, so obviously the, the problem that you have in the literature is that we have a lot of theories already about delegation um, and proxy warfare is kind of the concept that's been most widely used. The reason why I went beyond um, <clears throat> using proxy warfare and, and, and kind of framing this as surrogacy is because I thought the proxy warfare debate was very much stuck in the 20th century. It's a, it's a debate that comes from the Cold War period mostly. Uh, proxy refers to the kind of superpower uh, competition whereby one superpower is delegating the burden of warfare to a human surrogate, mostly a state actor, sometimes non-state actor for limited wars. Um, but the reasons and motivations behind proxy warfare was in, in entirely different from what I consider to be more widely surrogate warfare. So surrogacy um, is, is supposed to be more of an umbrella concept which looks beyond proxy warfare, encapsulates also proxy warfare, but also looks at the wider trend that we see in the technological domain as well. And when we look at cyber, um, artificial intelligence, robotics, um, and obviously also looks at you know, how technology more widely has been used as a surrogate. Uh, and thereby it goes beyond the proxy debate. The proxy debate is still very much based on kinetic warfare, on the delegation to human surrogates. It doesn't really draw upon uh, technology that much as surrogate warfare does. And we kind of thought about surrogate warfare as more of an umbrella concept where the central idea is the externalization of the burden of warfare to a surrogate. And that surrogate can be both human and technological. Um, so the motivation is not necessarily as it was in the proxy warfare debate about deniability, um, keeping, um, you know, making sure that in that competition between East and West, the, the Cold War was never supposed to turn hot 
uh, amid the theater of, uh, um, or amid the, the wider geostrategic um, context of, 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 an, of a looming nuclear war. So surrogate warfare is entirely motivated by the trends that we've seen post-Cold War, a trend of where states, nation states, are trying to look for ways to make warfare more economical, um, not just in terms of uh, minimizing the financial costs of war, but also minimizing the human costs of war, finding ways to remain engaged in protracted everywhere wars that uh, are never ending, <clears throat> and doing so, um, making and finding a way to make war more palatable to the public audiences, uh, domestic audiences at, at home, uh, and also more for the international global um, uh, civil society, making it more palatable, more sustainable to remain engaged in warfares or in conflicts that become increasingly messy in comparison to the kind of wars that we've seen in the 20th century. Um, and so it's about the externalizing the burden of warfare. And the burden of warfare has usually been, um, you know, the financial cost, human cost of war, but it's also increasing the political cost. It's about minimizing risks. And we look at warfare as in the 21st century as an exercise of, um, of risk mitigation and um, risk management, rather than actually achieving what, you know, we would see in the, in the conventional sense, you know, when we look at Clausewitz or, um, you know, von Moltke, which are very much stuck in the 19th, 20th century conventional uh, idea of war. Um, you know, we're not no longer about concentrated force and achieving quick victories. Um, it's about remaining engaged, not necessarily for the um, end of achieving tangible outcomes very quickly, but remaining engaged against enemies that are not tangible, against threats that are not tangible, uh, such as, you know, the global war on terror as a, as a good example. Well, you don't know where the enemy is, but you kind of know you have to be, remain engaged and usually kind of take a precautionary principle of making sure that, you know, when risks are there, you're trying to mitigate them before they become actual tangible threats. And that's entirely different from the conventional way of war. Um, and, and, and in that sense, uh, you know, surrogate warfare has become a, a, an effort of risk management rather than actually uh, warfare in itself. So, um, and how is this different? So Clausewitz <clears throat> is obviously the guy that has always been cited by everyone who looks at, at, at military theory. And it's, it's in many ways, I think a, most of his concepts, and I'm, I'm probably uh, a, a minority here because you know, the Clausewitz, has, Clausewitz still has quite a lot of supporters and advocates in, in, in military theories um, and in, among the community of military theorists. Um, but I'm probably a minority here and um, saying that you know, his idea of the character as well as the nature of war is fundamentally changing. So if you'd asked me 20 years ago, I probably would have told you that, you know, the character of war is changing, but the nature of war is kind of staying the same. Um, when we look in the, into the cyber domain, we look into subversion campaigns on social media. Um, um, if we look at, you know, AI and robotics becoming increasingly a part of kinetic warfare as well. If we look at this widening debate about warfare, I, I do think that the nature of war is also fundamentally changing. It's no longer about coercion. It's no longer about uh, achieving quick victories. It is about you know, risk management in protracted everywhere forever wars. And that's where surrogacy comes in. So Clausewitz in, in that sense doesn't really provide a good theory when it comes to, again, it's about concentration of kinetic force. Um, surrogate warfare allows you to, rather than creating a hi hierarchical approach to warfare, which is what Clausewitz and the, you know, the Prussian model, even von Moltke, the Prussian model of, 
of hierarchy, concentrated force, clear chain of commands. Um, this is no longer the warfare that we're seeing. When we look at surrogate warfare, surrogate warfare means delegation to a range of different human and technological surrogates. What you end up with are essentially uh, assemblages um, of different actors that are kind of work together in networks. Uh, and these networks are heterarchical, they're not hierarchical. Um, so control is limited. And um, delegation means also that you kind of dissociate yourself from what the surrogates are doing. And again, we have to look beyond militias. We have to look beyond private military companies. We have to look beyond state actors as, pro as proxies or surrogates. We have to look as well as bots and trolls on social media, for example. They're, they're again, you know, if you look at the information campaigns of the 21st century that are becoming increasingly disruptive, uh, again, it's about delegating to networks that you don't really control. So it's the exact opposite of what Clausewitz and von Molke would talk about. It's no longer about concentration, it's about diffusion. And, and deliberately, it's about diffusion. Um, so um, Sun Tzu, in many ways, I think, is probably more adequate as a theorist for warfare in the 21st century. But then obviously Sun Tzu's um, you know, expressions and, uh, and idioms, if you will, are very, very vague and ambiguous. You could kind of apply them to pretty much any sort of military context. But you know, one element of, of, um, of Sun Tzu, which I think is interesting, is that he's not necessarily talking about overwhelming fire, fire, firepower. It's about smart ways of achieving ends uh, through any means available, taking more or less a whole of nations approach, if you will, where the military is one of many components. And I think that's where surrogate warfare comes in. Surrogate warfare is also not just about the military domain. It's much wider. As I said, it's about the information domain, but you can also use surrogates when it's about influence campaigns. I'm writing a book at the moment about subversion, uh, which is the kind of opposite of coercion. Again, here, what you need are surrogates in the information domain, surrogates in academia, surrogates in uh, lobbying firms and PR companies, trying to achieve subverting the enemy's will um, and also subverting the enemy's decisions, decision making. And again, you're relying on a wide array of different actors that you can use. So all of this kind of is, can be uh, summoned up under the umbrella of surrogate warfare um, and obviously taking a very broad approach to warfare itself. Thank you so much for you know trying to lay out this very sophisticated and complicated idea in as simple as terms as possible for our listeners. Um, I want to take you. I mean, one of the things that really struck me about your book was this argument that this change in warfare is not a result of technological changes or or uh, political changes, but it is first and foremost a, a, a response to social transformations, right? So it's so, so drones, private military companies they perhaps should be seen better as a consequence rather than the cause of change in the nature of war. Um, I'm wondering if, if, if you could just lay out some of these bigger uh, sociological changes, social transformations that you say that lead to this new kind of war. I know you hint at globalization, but if you could say more about, about what are those some of those logics. So the, the four trends that I'm kind of the kind of buzzwords that I'm using for the context is, you know, globalization, we kind of all, I, th I don't think it requires any introduction, the concept of globalization, concept of, um, of uh, mediatization, which means that everything, everything that happens is an act, even any tactical um, activity can become a strategic, have, can have a strategic impact through, you know, social media, through the mediatization of any kind of act domestically and globally, a small local event can become a global event immediately. 
Um, then we have an issue of privatization more widely and privatization, you know, I wrote my PhD many years ago about uh, the commercialization of security and private military companies. Um, and privatization was 10, 15 years ago was always about commercialization, was always limited towards, you know, use of mercenaries, private military and security companies. When I look at privatization, I'm looking at top down and bottom up privatization of war, where the actors of war are no longer actors that are linked to the state. They might be linked to the state, but they're not state uh, not state owned, if you will. So private military and security companies are part of a top down trend of privatization, but we also have a bottom up trend of privatization where you know states in the developing world in particular, but not only, are losing the monopoly over the use as well as authority of uh, over violence. And um, that leads also to kind of very complex security environments where the security sector, which is state owned, is competing with an informal security sector. So that's kind of another trend. And that's something which becomes increasingly difficult for states to deal with, uh, including for states in, in the developed world. I mean, if you look at the United States and the trend of you know, armed militias um, in, the, in, the vague, in, the, in the wake of, um, of the end of the Trump presidency, we see a lot of mobilization of armed groups, which again, haven't really used armed force yet, but in a, in a climate of polarization, um, we see that the state has, in some instances, already lost ground to non-state actors who are armed and is competing with it. Um, and, and that's obviously a trend that we're seeing and that might get worse over time. Um, and then the, the other, other element is securitization. And securitization is something that I kind of touched upon before, is that, you know, we don't have the, like we had in the 20th century during the Cold War, this very tangible, very visible threat um, as you know, from a Western point of view, we always looked at Russia and you know Soviet Union coming over the hills uh, and and the battlefield in somewhere in Central Europe, um, where we kind of knew where the enemy was. We don't know where the enemy is, and obviously, if we look at you know the global pandemic as well, um, you know wh wh where is the enemy? Uh, is it really is it the, is the coronavirus? Uh, terrorism is also one of these threats, very intangible. You don't know is the is the threat really? I mean, initially in the war on terror, we kind of looked at the Taliban and we looked at Afghanistan, Al Qaeda. Um, and then realized that, you know, once ISIS came, obviously we had that caliphate that we could fight physically in, in Mesopotamia and in Syria and Iraq, when really the threat that emanated from ISIS was the wider global uh, mobilization that happened, uh, whereby the actors were actually already embedded in our society. So it made it very difficult to, to deal with. Um, so that is part of that, of that uh, trend of trying to mitigate risks and mitigate security, potential security threats. That's very important, potential security threats. Um, and, and that makes it so difficult because it means that the state always needs to be needs to be proactive and kind of preempt any potential attack and thereby needs to go out against security risks that are not tangible threats yet. And that makes it very difficult for the state to sell this to its own community. It's very difficult to set for the state to go to its public domestically and say we're going to war over something that hasn't happened yet or that might potentially happen. Um, even you know, if you look at the, the WMD, a program of, of um, the alleged one of, of uh, Saddam Hussein in 2003 as, as kind of the, the root cause of the intervention. There was a lot of securitization going on whereby the, the Bush administration at the time was trying to sell to the American public that there is a tangible threat. We need to go out there. We need to do something about it. Obviously that threat never materialized. The risk was obviously entirely inflated. Um, and in the end, you know, you kind of were drawn into, into that conflict that you then was very difficult to get out of. Um, and you know, same thing happens when it, when when you look at you know the whole ISIS threat. It's something you needed to something needed to be done in 2014. Um, but obviously, there was no stomach anywhere in the liberal Western world 
to actually go in with boots on the ground and kind of eradicate ISIS. So we needed to find other ways, but still it was a highly securitized threat. And I think rightly so. So these are the four trends, globalization, securitization, privatization and mediatization. Um, so to, to, and to talk about the social political element of it, um, I think what is interesting here is that um, we, what we see is the, this, the, the, the public at home being increasingly dissociated um, from the, the military activities of the state. And that, that is, you know, the ISIS one is, is a good uh, case in point. If you look at the United States, for example, the United States was really not targeted by ISIS as much as, for example, other European countries have. So we didn't, we had very limited, if any, real ISIS um, terrorist attacks within the United States. Nonetheless, it was, we saw that, you know, through sleeper, sleeper cells and, you know, the lone wolves and, and all these networks that ISIS had built indirectly um, through, you know, uh, radicalization and self-radicalization, that in the Western world, especially in France and Belgium, that these threats could become home-born home threats uh, eventually. So, again, the Obama administration needed to do something about it. Um, but for the domestic audience in the United States, this, this war against ISIS was very was very far away. People were saying, why do we need to go to war over something that hasn't really materialized yet? Um, so um, that has kind of created a, 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 a very problematic dilemma for the Obama administration. But on the one hand, they, they said, we need to do something about it. The public will not allow us to kind of mobilize troops at, at, a, at a large in a large scale. Um, and, you know, it, they won't give us the funds as well to do that. So we need to find a cheap and economical way to do something against that risk. Um, and surrogate warfare is kind of the panacea, if you will, for this dilemma. On the one hand, you're allowed, you're enabled to do something overseas. You kind of can kind of, you know, get involved in these conflicts. You can get involved against a particular risk, but doing so off the public radar with a very low cost financially, very low political cost as well, because the public doesn't really ask you what you're doing. Afghanistan is another great case study. Uh, for the most part, you know, considering that we still have, you know, Germany and UK and, 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 and the United States still have troops in Afghanistan. Nobody knows why we're still in Afghanistan. Um, it hasn't been well communicated. Um, the threat that came out of Afghanistan in, after 9-11 is not something that is still visible and understandable for, you know, the, you know, Generation Z, for example, because most of them weren't even born then, or when they were born, they don't, you know, they don't remember what really happened. So why are we still there? But, you know, people are not asking any questions because we've found ways to kind of stay under the radar in Afghanistan and um, fight a protracted conflict that we will never, never win. Um, again, the public has been dissociated. They don't ask questions. They don't care whether, where their soldiers are going. They don't know that there are a couple of thousand of US troops, German troops, British troops still stationed in Kabul and in other areas. So it, you kind of create these shadow stealth wars um, um, under, the, under the public radar. And what you are creating, what you're breaking essentially is the Clausewitzian trinity of society, state and soldier, right? Uh, the idea here is that society is kind of um, and empowering the agent, the state, to raise a military to provide for its security. When, however, the public no longer thinks that they're exposed to a security threat, what they're doing is they're saying, we don't want to, you know, we don't want you to use the military that we raise to pro protect us to fight threats overseas. And most of the threats today are overseas. A humanitarian intervention, for example, is about doing something overseas against a, you know, to, to help other people. You're not helping the public at home. So, the, the risk, um, the risk that the, the that society is willing to take uh, is is fairly limited. 
So again, the state is in that in that in that weird situation where it cannot use the military that it has raised to protect society because society says you can't use it, you know, casualty aversion, you can't use uh, our funds, which is our tax money to again fight wars overseas against something that is not really concerned uh, with our security. So the state is now trying to find ways to cut off society and cut off the military. And that's where Sarek warfare comes in. I mean, that needs to be, I mean, in the war, in, in the book, I kind of have a nice um, a way of illustrating this um, because you're kind of cutting the Trinity. The state is fighting a war using a surrogate, which is obviously not, the surrogate isn't raised through lo the local community, isn't raised by, uh, is not attached to local society. And that's why the local, that's why local society doesn't care. So what you what you end up with is, is something very similar to the pre-modern or early modern cabinet wars, where, you know, the cabinet, the executive is fighting wars without having to ask the legislature, uh, without having to ask parliament, without having to ask Congress, without essentially having to ask public opinion whether they can fight this war or not, because you're kind of muting them by, by dissociating them and not using the military, not using the, the, the citizen in uniform. And, and that's, that's something that, that most, most people are fine with, because they're saying you're fighting a war that doesn't concern us, uh, and you're using, well, you're using our funds, but you're not using our our human capital, our citizens to fight this war. So we don't really care. So go on, go on and do it. And that same phenomenon we can see also with private military and security companies, despite the fact that those people fighting that are often citizens of that state. So they're in US PMCs, they are contractors, most of them are Americans. Um, the, the public says it's fine because they're volunteers. They're happy to do this war. They're signing up to get well paid for it. So again, go on and do it. So we, what we end up with is cabinet wars that are run by the executive. In the case of the United States, it's the, the president. Um, in the case of the UK, it's the prime minister cabinet um, fighting a war without parliament's approval, uh, without parliamentary oversight, without congressional oversight in the United States. And that is creates a situation where the, the state can, can kind of stay engaged in a conflict indefinitely. Andras, I find very intriguing, especially when you were talking that uh, you are in a minority, that you don't look about Clausewitz. Uh, I'm not asking you if you're a fan of Jomini, but definitely Sunz, uh, in Sunz Binfa, in The Art of War, uh, underline how risk management and resource management is at the core of any effort. Of course, there was a time in which China was in the warring state, so it was not a fight between two powers, it was a fight between several states at the same time. But now you mentioned that also nature and character of war are changing, and you just mentioned cabinet war or pre-modern war. So if I can summarize, surrogate warfare is risk management, and you argue that it's not a new phenomenon, and in many ways it's a return to a pre-Westphalian norm. In more than one year that we are running this podcast, BOTG, uh, several of our guests, uh, practitioner and academician, uh, underlined how, in their opinion, we are looking to a pre-Westphalia time. You just mentioned that in the past, state outsourced defense to compensate for their own limited liability or limited capabilities. And today, it's mainly an attempt to limit state accountability. While this, in some way, may be true for a lot of the largest country with massive standing army, but the deficit in a capacity to continue to be uh, a major motivator for the military for outsourcing in place, for example, like, like the Gulf, where they don't have enough of resources. Uh, you have a, a very specific 
first-hand knowledge in working in the Gulf and with this military. I'm wondering if you could reflect on your experience in Qatar and how did surrogacy play out there and how did Qatar basically help you shaping your book? Thank you very much. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So the, the motivations and there the are a variety of motivations of why you engage in surrogate, surrogate warfare and why states do so. Um, and they, they obviously vary from, uh, you know, the size of the, the country as well as obviously a, a country that is not liberal, that doesn't have a civil society, that doesn't need to really answer to the public, doesn't really care whether most of the time, I should say, doesn't really care as much about where it sends its military. Um, um, so while you're right, I think for most Western states, it's about finding a discrete way of, of, of conducting war and one with you're finding a way of uh, conducting war with plausible deniability. For the smaller states, um, I think surrogate warfare is a way of translating financial power into military power um, and, and, and also military uh, reach, if you will. Um, and I think, you know, Qatar might not be the greatest of case studies here. Um, but you know, is is a good one. It's a country of three hundred and fifty thousand, three hundred thirty thousand um, indigenous uh, countries. So a very small pool of people that could actually join the military. So they are very much based on having loan service officers in their ranks. Um, and as a small country with a very small pool of um, of human capital, they obviously need to find ways to to delegate the burden of warfare to other entities. Qatar hasn't really been in war. Um, directly um, in, in the way that, that other Gulf countries have, but Qatar has been involved during the Arab Spring. And during the Arab Spring, what we saw is that the countries were very good at using a very small pool of special forces and augment them with uh, local militias. We, we saw that in, uh, in, in Syria in particular, um, where you had the country special forces uh, engaging with lo local opposition rebels and militia groups uh, to fight the regime. And so that's a way of how a small state would go about doing this. I think the better case study here in the Gulf is the UAE, because UAE, the UAE has a much more ambitious um, agenda than Qatar has. And when it comes to the military, Qatar has kind of withdrawn after the Arab Spring, has become more of a quietist diplomatic actor uh, because of the size, very small size of its military. Um, if you look at the UAE, though, they are quite a lot more ambitious and a lot more assertive in the way they use their military. And the way that they use their military um, we, you know, they, they engage in Yemen, they engage in Libya, uh, they're engaged in Somalia, um, among other uh, areas. And in all these conflict zones, they, they were looking and uh, trying to find ways to augment, again, a, a, they, they, they have a pool of, a one, of one million locals and indigenous Emiratis. It's, a, it's, it's obviously somewhat bigger than Qatar, but it's still very small in comparison in, in looking at their ambitions. So for them, surrogate warfare was very, very important. Uh, in, in the way um, of engaging in Yemen, for example. So they built up a surrogate force of the Southern, Southern Tran Transitional Council in Yemen. They set up a surrogate force of the Libyan National Army in Libya. They set up, um, you know, they work in extensively through mercenaries. Um, I, I don't want to call them private military companies because they're not really companies in the Western sense of the word. And I don't want to compare them, compare them to the PMCs that we've seen in, um, you know, in the United States or in the UK because they're a lot less formalized. Um, they're hiring Latin Americans for the most part um, that are then being uh, trained in, in Abu Dhabi and then sent off to fight in Yemen. Um, they've used Israelis and American contractors as well on, as, as hitmen to kind of take out particular 
um, what they call uh, terrorists um, in, in Yemen. So kind of uh, like, uh, like death squads running around killing people, again, being nothing to do with Emiratis, that is Emiratis delegating this to, to mercenaries. Um, and in Somalia, for example, they even set up with Eric Prince a, an anti-counter-piracy uh, operation entirely built out of, um, out of mercenaries, nothing to do again with Emiratis, Emirati boots on the ground. Um, and, and if you look at the motivating factor for the UAE to do this, um, it, it has a lot to do with their experience in Yemen. So initially in Yemen, they had quite a lot of boots on the ground. And um, in, in, in 2015, a, a group of an Emirati military camp was hit by a, a missile and around 52 or 54 Emiratis were killed on one day. That's obviously the single biggest loss of life. And as an authoritarian autocratic country, you'd think they don't really care about, the public doesn't care about these kind of casualties, but they actually did care quite a lot. And there was a lot of pressure to kind of minimize and keep casualties down. Um, so, in, in, in this respect, um, the UAE thought, okay, we need to keep our, despite the fact that they're non-liberal, trying to find a way to keep uh, keep um, keep casualties to 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 a very small uh, number. And the same we see in Russia. Russia again is a country very big in size. It's also not a liberal country. It's not a democratic country. But also their engagement in Syria was very much led by um, you know by having having to initially in 2015 having to. Um, bear the burden of, of human casualties. And again, in Russia, a lot of people were asking questions of why are our Russian comrades falling in Syria? And even here, the, the Russians were trying to find ways to minimize their casualties. Again, that's why Sargas. So despite the fact that, you know, smaller states might be more driven by capacity and, and augmenting capability, uh, often um, even, you know, uh, uh, smaller states who might not even be liberal have an issue of finding discrete and, and deniable um, means of warfare. And uh, the UAE is a great uh, case study in that, in that respect. Thank you. Dr. Craig, one of the other things that kind of puts your book apart from some of the other um, texts that have been, it's like you take the role of technology very seriously and in how it's shaping the idea of surrogacy. Um, you mentioned that AI in particular can perhaps take uh, the logic of surrogacy to its full ex extent by really taking the human control and human agency to out of the question and minimizing it to a great extent. Um, but can you give us, our listeners some insights into the kinds of arenas and military activities where we are likely to see an increasing role for AI, perhaps in the near future? And <laughs> in what ways do you think some of these challenges um, will, will, like what kind of questions will they throw? for us as politically and as socially? Right, um, <clears throat> that's a very speculative um, speculative um, question here uh, because we, we obviously see artificial intelligence already playing a very important role in, in, in targeting already for many of the new weaponry that's being built. I mean, even, even if you look at the, the F-35 or F-22, there's a lot of artificial intelligence in there. Um, but there are different degrees as we talk about in the book of automation um, and, um, Automation has been part of, of, of the revolutionary revolution of military affairs ever since the 90s, uh, even even earlier than that. Um, but what, what we're where we're getting to now is having obviously algorithms that um, that are self-learning and they are not just programs so that, you know, they're not, you know, automation basically means you, you set a, a, a weapon or you, you, you set an, a, an artificial intelligence up on a path that follows that path. 
depending on what you tell it to do. Algorithms and self-learning algorithms in particular enable us to create um, more, yeah, I don't want to call it conscience, but more aware weapon systems that are making decisions without the human in or on the loop. And that's the potential. I think we already, we, we can already develop these kind of, these kind of weapons um, if we wanted to. There are obviously a lot of ethical questions that need to be, to, to be answered. Uh, and I think the, the, the global, for the most part, the global consensus is that we do want the human always on the loop as a, as a means of, of supervising what these, um, these machine-led machines are actually doing. Um, the problem is, though, is that you have more and more sensors that are collecting data and that they kind of um, go into the decision-making process of the weapon systems itself. And thereby, they, be they become ever more autonomous. And by becoming more autonomous, despite the fact that you have a human on the loop that could potentially interfere, the fact is that the human doesn't have the ability, any human doesn't, you know, to actually control all these sensors, control all the data, and then interfere when he or she thinks uh, that the, the computer system is making the wrong decision um, because we're just simply overwhelmed by all the decision-making processes that are taking on in very sophisticated artificial intelligence. Um, so th th this, this, this is one of the, the major issues is that despite the fact of us being in the loop or on the loop, we are un increasingly unable to control all these systems, especially when we have more than just one system. Um, so when we have swarms of drones, for example, or even a, a, um, a squadron of drones flying and potentially making gathering data and making its own decision of what to strike and where to strike. And again, this is absolutely not a futuristic scenario. I mean, the, the technology exists. Um, and you, you're saying, yeah, but we have a human on the loop that makes sure that, there, that no mistakes are being made. That the problem is that the human cannot control all these different systems. So we might return and going and creating an AI that controls the other AIs. Uh, but again, that is that would delegate it even further. And um, the, so what I'm what I'm see, what we're seeing increasingly is an outsourcing of the human element in it, despite the fact that nominally uh, they are still on the loop or in the loop. There is so much. Uh, decision making going on that we already delegated to machines that um, that we that we are increasingly losing the ability to control it effectively. And uh, you know, it's controlling the ability to control also means that you need to that you need to have the cognitive ability to actually control it. And I, and I feel like we don't have that cognitive ability anymore that much. Um, so th there are obviously a lot of issues that come with it. And as I say, there is a global consensus of um, you know how far. Um, automation as well as artificial intelligence is supposed to go you know how much do we want algorithms to be autonomous and i feel that we've broken that sort of um, um that sort of consensus in in recent years some people have so i think 20 years ago even 10 years ago the us was very much leading on 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 all these ai questions on on glo in global fora within the un for example you would see that uh, the us us would take a a very liberal normative approach of saying, you know, they need to be red lines of what we can and cannot do and what we let machines do or not do. Um, the, the emergence and resurgence of, of China as, as the leader in AI has really bro broken that sort of consensus. I think China has found a way of not only surpassing uh, technology and development um, of AI uh, in terms of anything that's been done in the Western world, China is definitely the leading country in that respect, but China obviously has an, an entirely different normative approach to it, and they don't have the same inhibitions. 
And I think the problem that, that we see here is that without the Western liberal um, limitations that we put in the Western world or that we have put traditionally on the, on the research and development of AIs, um, China can really leap ahead. And I think automation and AI is not just in the kinetic sense, but also in terms of AI can control a whole set of different levers of power, especially in the, in the wider information domain. And what we can see here is that if we in the West are imposing our liberal normative constraints on the development of such machines and uh, auto autonomous systems, we will we're, we're kind of uh, we'll be left behind. And I think that has led to um, this consensus being broken that the US now is saying, okay, we can't really stick to the same guidelines that we wanted to set out a decade ago, because then we'll be left behind. So we need to invest as well. Um, nonetheless, our the laws, our liberal laws about uh, privacy laws, data collection laws are still never going to be what they are in China. We don't have all these sensors. We're not allowed to store all that data. So in, in that respect, I think we're, we're being left behind. Uh, and it's, it's, it's kind of a race to the bottom of saying, let's get rid of all these constraints. Let's just, we need to make sure that we, we kind of keep an edge. And, and that kind of, this kind of arms race that is being, being set off over the last decade or so, um, I think is, it can be not just disruptive, I think it can be very, very destructive as well. Um, and I think that's where we sort of see the trend. And again, the trend is more delegation to the machine, less, and, 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 and kind of, um, you know, taking out the human out of the loop as much as you can. And I think that's a trend which I find very, very problematic, um, not just in the kinetic realm, but beyond that, in, in terms of how we engineer, um, you know, social cohabitation, social life more widely with AI in the loop. Yes, what you just mentioned, uh, especially regarding to China, I think is well summarized uh, in a book that now I think it's quite old. Uh, the translation in English, uh, I think, is Unrestricted Warfare by Colonel Chao Liang and Wan Xiang Shui. Uh, on this respect, I think we can go on to talk for hours uh, here at MEI and US. We just had uh, one uh, webinar last week on how AI competition, US-China superpower, was going to play, is going to play in, uh, in the Middle East. And now looking back at the Middle East, uh, I would like to look a little bit at Iran. Uh, in, in your publication, you suggest that Iran has been ahead of the curve when it comes to surrogate warfare. On account of having worked with various militia and state actors since the early days of the revolution. Iran, you further argue, also has a better control of what uh, uh, is, uh, let's say, a central tension between control and autonomy. Can you elaborate uh, on what allowed to have a great control over the surrogate without uh, additional transactional costs? Right. Um, so there's one trade-off that we talk about essentially in the book, which is the kind of trade-off between control and autonomy. So you do want a degree of autonomy for your surrogate um, because that creates dissociation. If you have too much control, obviously, whatever the surrogate does kind of reflects back on you, which means you kind of can't avoid accountability. Um, at the same time, you want to control the surrogate because you want the, the surrogate to do what you asked him, it, or you know the surrogate to do. Um, so, and what the, what, your, what the SAG is always striving to do is creating and maximizing autonomy because they want to get your support, but they also want to achieve their own ends. And obviously when your ends and the ends of the patron, uh, if the, the ends of the SAG and the ends of the patron don't overlap too much, then you, you're kind of left with a race where in the end, it, finally, the, you know, the SAG will end up doing whatever 
he or she or it is, is trying to achieve. Um, that and, and so you're kind of trying to find a perfect equilibrium where you have effective, where you have a degree of effective control, but that much dissociation um, from the surrogate as a patron um, to kind of get away with murder, if, if that makes sense. So Iran, I think, has, has obviously its entire military complex is built up on surrogacy. It's one, it's built up on, on delegation. It's one that is based on delegating the burden of warfare to local actors across the region that can, again, not win wars, but can kind of hurt, um, the, hurt your enemy. And the approach is one of death by a thousand cuts. It's basically you're doing a lot of little pincher movements that can that can hurt and that can disrupt the activities of your enemy, um, and that go, you know the enemy being the Gulf states, the United States, and other Western uh, powers engaged in the Middle East. Um, and over time, you kind of create a picture where so much disruption is leading to uh, an overwhelming burden on your enemy, and the enemy withdraws. And I think some of it we've seen with the U.S. withdrawal from the Middle East, where I think the Iranians are now have achieved a, um, a situation or created a situation where the burden put upon the United States, especially in Iraq, through its militia network, has been overwhelming for the US and unsustainable, where the US is now asking itself, is this still a, um, is that a burden that we're willing to carry and for what end? Um, so what, what, what the Iranians have achieved is creating a very complex and very wide reaching network of, you know, mostly 99% human surrogates across the region, especially in Yemen, uh, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, um, but also more widely in Africa and South America, um, with you know some of them, some of them we would call terrorist organizations um, because they're these kind of non-state actors in South America, uh, cells that are linked to the Quds Force. Some of them are also in in Southeast Asia actually, um, um, and it's it's networks of of sometimes just individuals that can be activated for Iran. To, um, to kind of uh, perpetrate an attack um, against uh, whatever the target might be at any given time. And what the Iranians have done is they've created a network that is held together, if you will, not just by transaction by transactional means, i.e. not just through means of accommodation, support and coercion on the other side. Uh, so it's not just carrot and stick, which is what we do in the West most of the time, but uh, creating a community which is almost genuinely and authentically buying into the overall grand strategic narrative of the um, Islamic Republic and the Islamic Revolution. The idea of being the kind of uh, reactive, anti-Western, anti-colonialist uh, movement uh, against you know, the so-called Zionist threat, against uh, you know, the US arch enemy. And many of these surrogates are buy that are buying into that um, are not necessarily driven by you know, Shia Islamism, which is, you know, being Iran as the kind of Shia, the leader of the Shia uh, Muslim world. But it's also, you know, groups like Hamas, for example, which are not Shia, who are buying into the overall narrative of obviously being against Israel, being against US presence in the region. And um, Iran has over many decades kind of created an umbrella, which is, 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 is very attractive. Um, obviously, it comes with support as well, financial support, material support, which is important. And again, I think the Iranians have developed a great technology um, on their own with the help, sometimes with the help of China and Russia. But, you know, quite, quite good technology when it comes to ballistic, ballistic, uh, ballistic missile systems and also in the cyber domain, they're getting better and better. So they have technology that they can transfer as a way of inducing um, surrogates to, to work with them. And the Houthis are a great point 
in Yemen, uh, a, a great a case in a case study in this respect. The Houthis are obviously an autonomous actor. They have their own strategic ends that they're fighting for in Yemen. Um, Iran has limited control over the Houthis, um, but it's a win-win situation for the time being. They have both have the same enemy as in Saudi Arabia for the most part, um, and Israel as well, but Israel doesn't really play a major role in this at the moment. But the Houthis have received, <clears throat> have existed before Iranian support and will exist without Iranian support. So even if the Iranians were withdrawing from Yemen now, Houthis would continue fighting. Um, but because they have overlapping interests, uh, the Iranians have invested quite heavily in, in, in uh, material support as well as training um, and equipping forces and making the Houthis a much better fighting force, particularly when they're engaging Saudi Arabia. And the, the, the great thing about this from an Iranian standpoint is that the transformational um, control that they have developed over these surrogates means that they have a degree of of holding them to account because the, the surrogate and the patrons all seem to be fighting for the same thing. So having an overall grand strategic narrative that, um, that your surrogate can buy into um, kind of helps streamlining and creating synergies across your surrogate network. And I think that's where Iran is a lot better than the West because when we as the West go and engage with surrogates <clears throat> anywhere in the world, it's mostly based on transactional, um, uh, transactional control. And transaction control is only short term it will not last because eventually when the surrogate is 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 finding uh, you know the interest that his or you know it, its interests are diverting from the patron's interest then um the 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 surrogate is trying to find ways to kind of bypass the um bypass the uh, the patron's control and they they then they will do that i think transformational buy in if you can create this is a lot more long lasting a lot more sustainable um, and I think that's probably the greatest lesson to be learned from the Iranians. Uh, thank you. Now, moving the conversation on to part of the world we're sitting in right now, Singapore, um, you mentioned that this change, the global change that's happening within this, uh, perhaps no state will remain unaffected. So even small states like Singapore cannot have this uh, bunker mentality. You know, you build a fort with walls big enough and that's fine. Um, because the nature of war itself is changing. So within this, within this changing nature of war, uh, perhaps very quickly, what do you think are some of the basic or sort of practical steps a state like Singapore can take to move from war to risk management with perhaps a light touch? Um, well, that's a, that's a broad question. Um, I think the, the most important thing in the 21st century is, again, is not relying on one lever of power. I think having a whole, gov whole of government approach means developing other levers of power. And I think Singapore has effectively done this. I think, um, you know, Singapore is a great case study of a small state that uh, through hedging as well uh, has created a, a relative security that is not reliant entirely on its military because its military is very small in size. Uh, so I, I think economic financial levers of power as well as um, political diplomatic levers of power are equally important. And a whole of government approach means you, are, you have to be prepared to kind of go into competition with your neighbors or an antagonist um, um, in, 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 in a, with a, the ability to win in every single domain or at least in, in, in order to be, at least be resilient in that domain. And Singapore has that resilience uh, in, in the economic and financial uh, sector, which is very important, and trade. Um, it has created a network of, of international partners. Um, but I think when it comes to information, the information domain, I, I do think that the information domain is, is, is one of these areas where 
uh, small states can probably um, equalize their, their smallness or kind of overcome their smallness in, in the quickest way. Uh, I think a country that doesn't have a vast military um, but is good on AI is developing systems that are um, um, uh, that, that, that allow it to to compensate for its human capacity shortages, um, as well as um, finding ways to to use financial power again, having having quite you know having a lot of money to spend. I think the information domain allows you to kind of spend that money and get get a power projection in return. Um, so I think in the information domain you can make up for a lot of things that you can't make up for as quickly in the military domain. Um, so subversion, I think, is a is a very interesting way, you know, messaging positive as well as negative, um, um, are ways for a country to kind of create itself and, and build itself a certain reputation in the world. And the UAE is a great case study as well for that. First of all, creating a very solid positive reputation of itself and then using that information power and networks and I'm not just talking about social media bots and PR companies. I'm talking about um, surrogates of, you know, academic uh, think tanks, um, uh, universities that they fund, um, creating networks of, of business leaders in the Western world that all in the end will come and do your bidding when you ask them to. Uh, and I think Singapore is, is another case where, you know, they can learn from the UAE in that respect. Information power is not just, uh, you know, using cyber technology or operating in the cyberspace. It's everything that uses information to kind of maximize um, maximize your impact in the world and potentially even changing the behavior of actors um, elsewhere. So I think influence operations can be very, very, uh, can be a very, very important tool to kind of get your partners as well to change policy in your favor without using coercion at all. Uh, and I think Singapore is it's probably one of these countries that that could, they could maximize in that domain uh, while obviously keeping all the networks that it has everywhere else. You just mentioned information power and I think we can discuss for many hours just about this, but considering that we need to wrap up at the end uh, our podcast, I think we leave it for an open invitation for your next book. So what I'm going to do now uh, is to ask the question that we asked to all our guests. And it's quite broad, long and difficult question. And you have just a couple of minutes to answer. And is that in your opinion, what will be the future of war and risk management in a complex environment in the next 30 years? Especially if you could elaborate uh, in regard to the fact that if you think that private military companies or other mode of surrogate warfare are here to stay, or are they just a temporary solution to the vacuum left behind the collapse of the Cold War order? Thank you. Um, let me, I mean, this kind of draws upon a lot of the things that I've said already. Um, for, for one thing um, is that I think the, the, the global trend is a return to pre-modern times. I think we will see more of the, what some people were calling the neo-medievalization of the world, uh, where you don't have a, a, a bipolar order, but an apolar order. I, I wouldn't even call it a multipolar order. I think we'll have a lot of different regional and international uh, actors competing um, and local actors as well. I mean, local, regional and international actors competing in and making it into a very, very complex world where all the kind of realist state-centric ideas of how the world works don't, don't really hold. And in that kind of messy competitive environment uh, where state and non-state actors interact with one another, where non-state actors at times have more power than state actors um, and obviously are kind of weighing in in that competition as well, 
as actors of, on, in their own right, among them multinational companies, for example, I do think that uh, it becomes very, very difficult for the state to manage that um, to manage that global apolar order. And I do think as well that the UN system, which is built up as a state-centric system of just around 198 states, is in, 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 impotent uh, and incapable, uh, incapable to actually managing that mess. And what we will see is obviously that in order to kind of sustain yourself and maintain uh, maintain yourself as well in that kind of unstable apolar order, um, I think states will increasingly rely as well on outsourcing and delegation and working with non-state actors because that's the way you can the only way you can compete because your the regular military is no longer is obviously important for that very niche activity of of major combat operations but if i think major com combat operations will be a um will be a, a not a thing of the past but it will be very much a a non-usual a non um uh, you know non-conventional way of of doing war if you will uh, the conventional way of war will be the new surrogate way of war, which is messy uh, and difficult to control. And um, private military companies will play as much a role as executive um, agents of the state, as well as executive agents of multinational companies as well, because multinational companies accumulating more power, more wealth uh, than some states means that they are also competitors in this increasingly apolar world. Um, so it's definitely a, a bit of a gloomy outlook into the future rather than an, an optimistic one. Um, but I think the, the on the positive side, I think we're not seeing major combat operations and major long wars um, means that, you know, for while we have to live in a state of constant unpeace, um, we it's still better than living in a state of complete war. Um, but I don't think we will return to a world order of peace, uh, unfortunately, which peace in the, in the conventional understanding of it. Um, thank you so much, Dr. Heck, for joining us today. We're ending on somewhat of a grim note, but I, I really do recommend everyone to, for those who are interested to know more, to read uh, Surrogate Warfare, The Transformation of War in the 21st Century. Uh, thank you everyone for joining us today. And I would like to also especially thank the MEI events team who are working behind the scenes to make all of this possible. Uh, I hope that you all, uh, can join us in our upcoming podcast and do let us know with your comments and feedback. They really do help us in shaping how we, how we talk about things here in the podcast. So thank you everyone for joining us today. Have a good evening. Thank you.